This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. On this week's panel, we have Jessica Luther, independent writer, general slayer, and author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. She's in Austin, Texas. Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History and Undeniable Genius at Hofstra University in New York. And I'm Shireen Ahmed, freelance writer and cat lover in Toronto, Canada. Today we will be discussing the Women's World Cup in cricket and fangirling all over the skill, wonder and excitement, the North American Indigenous Games, and I share my interview with Métis runner and athlete activist Tracy Leost. We will hear from Lindsay, who was in Seattle covering the WNBA All-Star Game, and we've got snippets from Sue Bird, Cheryl Reeves, Lisa Borders, and the East's breakout star Kel Jones. And Jessica, Brenda and I will share our thoughts on the current environment of sports writing. Jessica, can you start us off? Good morning, everybody. So as we are recording this, across the pond in England, at the Lord's Cricket Ground in London, England is playing India in the final of the Women's Cricket World Cup, and I'm sure if there's a finale somewhere in here, Shireen will update us. The event is sold out, with roughly 26,000 spectators watching the action. This is no small thing. Here is what Tim Wigmore of the New York Times wrote about this watershed tournament for women's cricket. Quote, For the first time since the Women's World Cup began in 1973, the players have received daily expenses equal to those provided for men in International Cricket Council events, and the visiting teams flew to England for the tournament in business class, as has long been the norm for men. Prize money has increased to $2 million, 10 times the figure for the previous tournament, which was held in India in 2013, the competition, which started among 18 on June 24th, has so far attracted a global television audience of over 50 million, an 80% increase from 2013. And then there are the more than 26,500 tickets that have been bought for Sunday for today, a record for a Women's World Cup match. It is also about six times the old high mark, 4,426, for any women's match at Lourdes. Okay, so the World Cup has been played since 1973, but it's been a rough go, sometimes in search of enough teams. Most often they're in search for money and resources. It's actually only been since 2005 when the International Women's Cricket Council and the International Cricket Council became one that the Women's World Cup has been held at regular four-year intervals and actually had secure funding. Here again is the New York Times Wigmore. Quote, perhaps most significant has been the growing interest in women's cricket in India, the economic powerhouse of the men's game. In 2015, India introduced national contracts for its elite players, becoming the last of the top eight women's teams to do so. Mitali Raj, the captain for India's team and a former badass woman of the week on this podcast, told the Times, quote, it would be a revolution for women's cricket in India if we go on to win the World Cup. It would be a real big thing. We'd be in a better position to promote the game and create a brand value for women's cricket. This just reminds me that women are never just playing sport for sport's sake. They are always playing it for the future of the sport and for the girls coming up behind them. This is no different today. So now I don't want to pretend that I understand cricket because I've actually never watched a match in my entire life. That's my Americanness shining through. But before I hand the baton off here, I do want to give a shout out to India's Harmanpreet Kaur. 
In the semifinal against Australia last week, and let's be clear, Australia is the most dominant team. They're the defending champions. They have won six of the 10 World Cups so far. Kaur was spectacular. Here's how CNN described her play. Quote, the Indian women's cricketer drew worldwide acclaim for her historic 171 not out against Australia to send her country through to only its second ever women's World Cup final. It's an innings that has been compared to some of the best in one-day international history. Only three players in the history of the competition have recorded a higher innings score. So, it shouldn't have to be said, but I'm going to say it anyway. These women can play. All right. Uh, Shireen, tell us. I know you're freaking out about what's going on right now in the final. So, why don't you tell us your thoughts on this Women's World Cup? Well, I've, admittedly, I'm of South Asian descent, so cricket plays a huge part into my family, and I have cousins that play competitively. And the only reason, and they'll probably kill me when I say this, that I got really interested in cricket at all was because of women. I started to follow Pakistan's uh, Girls in Green, and that really started to have me pay attention. I was very confused by the rules of cricket and have been, and I was really only in it for the food, like the kebabs and the baratas at the family gatherings, let's be honest. So, um, but I really, really really started to get into it because of this. And this particular Women's World Cup has been very exciting because the amount of coverage, like I followed the T20s, I wrote about the West Indian women last year and, and, and when they won, and it was wonderful. I wrote for Galdem about the Windies winning because the men had won and the women had won and the solidarity was really incredible. And I've seen the likeness of that with the girls in blue, the Indian team. Harman Precor's like achievement was incredible when they played against Australia. There were, you know, Sachin Tendukalar was a former uh, Indian player. He's retired now. He's considered one of the greatest. He was tweeting out support. Everybody was ooing and eyeing. Um, you know, it was it was as they should be. Like she is, she was literally slaying it. And it was so exciting to watch because of the excitement, which I had never seen before. Like Cricket India is constantly tweeting about it. Mithali Raj has her own hashtag on Twitter, her little emoji. Like this is, and as you said, she was our baddest woman of the week a couple of weeks ago. Um, also the, the way that the women respect each other is incredible. After the match against Australia, Alex Blackwell actually gave her jersey to core, which in a show of solidarity and oh, support, awesome. which I think is wonderful. Yeah. And it's this kind of stuff is important to encourage each other. And it's very, very competitive. But I mean, his, cricket has, if we look at it a little bit historically, has long been in the blood and the veins of these women. It's just giving them an opportunity to get out there and showcase their talent and show the world. And this game against England is a big deal. And I mean, at this point right now, um, Mithali Raj and uh, core have not yet batted. So we'll see what happens in the next couple minutes um you know um cricket matches are pretty long but uh I'm, I'm excited about all of it i mean i did not put this in the burn pile but this morning espn crick info website when it listed the matches actually i retweeted this said there's no current match happening right now during the final so people are like completely shutting them down so i mean there's still some work to do here but this is this is incredible it's very very exciting Shireen, didn't something happen with the Pakistani women's team when they returned? I saw you tweeting about it the other day. Yeah, I was uh, I was raging about this on Twitter. Uh, the girls in green, as they're known, I love them. They're led by Captain Sanamir. They've worked quietly and diligently and faced a lot of obstacles. Um, they returned back to Pakistan after they lost all their matches in this World Cup, and it was they did they didn't do very well. Like. Undeniably, it was a bit of a dismal performance. But when they returned back, there was nobody from the Pakistan Cricket Board. It was reported uh, by the Tribune, I believe, um, that nobody was there to receive them. Oh, wow. There wasn't a member. There was no staff person. And more importantly, there was no transportation. So one player actually called her dad, who came on a motorcycle and drove two of the girls home. And there's a photo of that. Now, Everyone started, you know, rage tweeting as expected. And this is not how you treat a national squad. This isn't how you do it. You want to develop in a team, you invest in them. Yes, they're not going to win all the time, but that doesn't mean you leave them stranded. Then there was rumors that the PCB was going to fire Senamir and, and, and replace some of the senior players. And I just, it was in such poor taste and, and, and it was really bad timing. Like they had, didn't have a great run at this particular tournament. They'll suit up and they'll try again and they'll do again. And I mean, yes, 
Pakistan men have won the most recent tournament, but for years before that, they won nothing. So, I mean, I'm not trying to say, oh, it's the same as the men's game. We know it's different, but support for women's sport is crucial, and particularly when it is still developing. So I was I was raging, and the Pakistan Cricket Board did release a very, you know, a very what I considered a, there's no other word for it, but meh statement. Um, about it and said, no, there was a misunderstanding and it was wrongly reported. But no, the source that reported that was was legitimate. And I just, I was really, really angry about it because those women have gone without support and without funding, enough funding for a really long time. So the world of cricket, as exciting as it is, we hope that other countries and other boards, you know, look to the way India is supporting its women and excited about it. And hopefully they'll catch on. Yeah, I think this is one of the really frustrating things about women's sport in general is that they, you know, historically they're massively under-resourced compared to the men's game. But then when they go out to play, they're expected to always win. Like if they're not winning every single thing, then somehow they are undeserving of the very little resources that they've already been given. Like it's a horrific catch-22 that makes it really hard for women's sport to grow. Like there's no way to win in that you know, in that setup. And I feel like this is such a great example that, you know, they just didn't care about them when they came home because they didn't win enough. But like, as you said, they're, they haven't been supported in their country in the way that they should have been for a really long time. And if you're really going to grow a game, you have to take the losses with the wins. Like that's part of athletics and the sort of expectation for women is so incredibly high. And I mean, I said this in the intro to this segment, but, you know, all these Indian women cricketers, when they've been interviewed about what's happening with their team and how well they've done, they talk about what it means for the future and how important it will be for the growth of the game within their country. And that's just the immense pressure there to win, not just to be champions and, you know, the excitement of that, but like the pressure to grow the game uh, it, it's just so unfair to women's athletes. Like it just shouldn't be that way. I, and I, I'm just infinitely frustrated at, at this this setup for women's sport. And a lot of the a lot of the uh, cricketers that have been interviewed talk specifically about that. What you said is key to grow the game, to inspire other girls to play, and to get them involved and let them know that they belong on that field. And it's so interesting that they're never just focused. They're you know, determined to win, but they're always focused on growing the game. And that's just, it's so key here. And I mean, what I I thought about this with my cousin last night, actually, who was trying to say, well, you know, small steps, small steps, but I mean, I'm, I, I want more steps. I want better steps, you know, to support women in sport and sport development for women doesn't work like that. If you just expect them to win all the time, you've got to invest in them. You've got to invest the time. You've got to invest proper coaching equipment. I mean, it's only a couple of years ago that women were actually given memberships to cricket clubs in Pakistan to practice. They had no specific field. So it's got to come. And then at the same time, they're expected to win everything. Like, it doesn't make sense. But I mean, I'm, I hope that what comes out of this World Cup is excitement and understanding and, and, and a commitment to develop and invest further in these women. Moving on to our next topic, the North American Indigenous Games wrapped up in Toronto last night was the closing ceremonies. The NEIG started in 1990 and have representation from teams from all over Canada and the U.S. This year, NEIG 2017 is expected to be the largest sporting and cultural gathering of Indigenous peoples in North America. More than 5,000 participants, 2,000 volunteers, countless spectators for more than 14 different categories are being held within top venues across the Greater Toronto Area. NEIG will unite individuals and communities across North America through sport, and I'm reading this from their website, in order to celebrate our past, heritage, present, unity, and future youth. In the spirit of the NEIG movement, the Toronto 2017 NEIG strives to promote the unity of Indigenous peoples across North America and cultivate opportunities for physical, cultural, and social development. Um, Just 
I wanted to read off something that Senator Constance Simmons, she's the Métis from the Métis Nation of Ontario, said to the athletes during the opening ceremonies last week. She said to them, do you know that you are the answer to a prayer, a prayer that was sent out by our ancestors seven generations ago? And here we are, the pride of your family, the pride of your community, the pride of your nation rests on you. I just thought that was really, really, really beautiful. And I had a conversation with Tracy Leost, who is a student athlete and activist at the University of Regina in Saskatchewan. And our dear listeners know that I'm never speechless, but Tracy really blew me away. And she told me about how she uses sports to highlight the crisis of over 3,000 missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. Her efforts have been chronicled in the Globe and Mail, Vogue, the Toronto Star, among others. And here's my conversation with Tracy. I'm so happy to have you on the phone with me and very thankful because you still have two events to do today. I am just really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. Tracy, just to give us, uh, your story became national and I think you were covered globally and there was a feature on you in Vogue magazine actually about the work you've done to raise awareness about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. And I know this is something that's so close to you. Can you tell us what kind of prompted the idea for you to run four days, 115 kilometers. Yeah, so um, it actually all started for me in the 2014 North American Indigenous Games. It was in Regina, Saskatchewan. And it was just this experience that um, I had at the opening ceremonies that really um, had an impact on me. And um, I was just surrounded by 4,000 plus Indigenous athletes. And the person speaking just kept saying that, the people here, these athletes, we're the generation that picks up the broken pieces. And whatever changes you decide to make, this is the people it will affect and this is the people it will help. And something about that just really stuck with me. And um, how I best describe it is I left Nag in 2014 with a fire burning inside of me that I just needed. I needed to address something and I needed to help my people somehow. And that year I went into grade 11 and I took a couple of Indigenous Studies courses, and I had a great teacher, thankfully. And um, we got a project about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And um, the whole point was to not only focus on the numbers and and what happened to them, but their life and story and the fact that they're more than just a stat in a national crisis, and these are our people. But um, that really opened my eyes because I w- wasn't really aware that this was a national crisis and that there are thousands upon thousands of women that are just disappearing and no one seems to care. Mm -hmm. So um, I wanted people to know what was happening because I remember that there wasn't a conversation about it and it was important to me to make others aware of what was happening because they weren't very, people weren't very supportive towards Indigenous people either. And that's where I got the idea to use my running shoes to give silence a voice. I've been a runner all my life, so it just made sense to me to use running to make a change somehow and it ended up being running from my grandparents house in Oak Point Manitoba to the Forks in Winnipeg and the route I passed is very um, historical to my life and where I grew up mm-hmm. and be, it was 115 kilometers in total in four days and I raised $6,101 for a local organization that helps the families and victims affected in any way that they can. Wow. And did you get support from the greater from greater athletes in the running community, or was it predominantly the Indigenous community that rallied around you? No one really um, caught on to it at first. There was a lot of like, oh, this is a really cool idea, like good for you, um, it's like really great what you're doing. But a lot of people were, were really doubtful because when does someone actually run 115 kilometers in four <laughs> days? And when does, first of all, a female, and secondly, an Indigenous female, right? Like people... Um, People are really doubtful and um, negative and discriminative to those types of people. So um, it was a lot of doubt at first. And um, despite that, I kept moving forward. And yes, I'm going to do this. And whether you believe in my cause or not, like this is really important to me. Because I remember it was predominantly male athletes telling me that running 115 kilometers is not going to get you anywhere educate yourself about something that matters, make a change about something that's actually important. Like people were really rude. And to me, that kind of just like um, inspired me. Like I use that as motivation to just move forward. And like, that is exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. And now two years later, the MMIW journey of hope is a global conversation. And the people that have been telling me this are now trying to say like, Oh, I'm really proud of everything you've done. (laughs) But 
like you can't, I can't forget what they said and, and how that motivated me. So um, I think that they realize now that you can't do that and you can't say stuff like that. And um, they, they're, I guess, realizing um, how much bigger this um, cause actually is to me in our greater country. But um, athletes are really, really, really supportive to me, whether that be track teammates or um, hockey players or volleyball players. Um, anytime I ever post anything about it, um, the reply back from all sorts of athletes is incredible. Um, I really appreciate it, Daphne, and I love that um, it's athletes supporting athletes. But more importantly, the Indigenous community has been behind me this the whole way. There has been no doubt. It's been nothing but um, love and support for them, and that's something I really, really appreciate. You embody not just being an Indigenous woman, uh, but a youth. I mean, you started this whole thing yeah. when you were, what, 15 years old is when this happened, mm-hmm. uh, although you've been running your whole life. And I just think that's so important because, like you said, people dismissing what is so important to you and that's so harrowing, that experience, and it's something that's commonly uh, experienced by athletes in the margins and women in the margins who are who are dismissed by, you know, white male counterparts in that regard and you took it you literally ran with it like literally yeah <laughs> and i've like drawn so much attention in a way that you're joining emerging worlds of sport and of justice and that's like so beautiful and in- incredibly important like i'm just i'm i'm floored but i'm also really honored to be talking to you because this is this this is incredible and so where do you where where are you going from here what are the next steps after you medal in your <laughs> the North American uh, for me, I'm competing here, and um, I'm telling a lot of people it's not about the medals for me. <laughs> I'm competing against a lot of incredible athletes, and although I was really successful in 2014, I would like to say I'm a different person now because that whole experience changed my life phenomenally. Being here is more important than the medals itself, and I don't feel that the medal, if I have a medal or I don't have a medal, it doesn't um, reflect my experience because. Yeah. Um, I stand here along 5,250 other Indigenous athletes who are coming together to raise our voices and um, voice our causes and come together to change our nation and things that are affecting these people directly. Um, so my moving forward, um, I always feel really inspired being at NAG and hearing people's stories. So I always use that as, as an advantage to come home and um, use that and be a voice to what's happening. So my teammates come from across the province. I have a teammate who's actually medaled in two of his events so far. He's doing great. Mm-hmm. And I asked him how he trains in the winter and off season or how he trains in general because he's from Cross Lake First Nation. And there's not a lot of resources um, in our First Nations community because the government um, underfunds them by 30 to 50%. So the funds are very low for them. Mm-hmm. And he runs in snowshoes in the winter to train. I have... Um, teammates um, in Alonzo, Manitoba, who run down gravel roads as sprinters. Like, that's their training. Um, wow. I guess normal for them to sprint past, a, like, a cattle farm. Like, that's totally normal. Um, or I have teammates that don't have um, connections to proper, um, like, attire, like proper running shoes mm-hmm. or, or things that will help them phenomenally. Mm-hmm. So, for me, I come here and I get to meet incredible people and hear incredible stories and this isn't just Canada, this is across North America. Yes. So now you're connecting with people from the States and, and they're connecting with people from Canada. And together you just come together and you be a voice for each other. Mm-hmm. And I remember with a lot of my competitions, there wasn't a lot of love in high school. You didn't really support other, other women you were competing against. They were quite mean to each other, actually. Mm-hmm. And here I just love that regardless of who you are, where you come from, you're supported, you're appreciated, there's no discrimination whatsoever. And when you're running and someone passes you or you pass someone, they encourage you, you encourage them. And every time you're running, every person in the stands is cheering for you. It's not just for Team Manitoba, Team Saskatchewan, Team Ontario, Team Colorado. Mm -hmm. Everyone cheers for everyone. Mm -hmm. And it's really important for me and for others to understand that they're in a place where they're supported but um, in the place they're comfortable and finally being cheered for because that's not something that they've, all, they've always experienced. Yeah. So I always take that as motivation to move forward and to be a voice for others. So in the Faculty of Social Work, and um, I'll be going back to school in the fall. And that's the and University this is kind of, of Manitoba, correct? I'm at the University of Regina. Oh, Regina, sorry. Okay. I'm a scholarship student there in an Indigenous okay. program. So I kind of use all of this motivation 
I put it directly into my social work degree because it connects so perfectly because social work reflects exactly on everything these people experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So I use it as knowledge and motivation. Mm -hmm. But from there, um, I volunteer in my community and coach um, inner city and underprivileged youth. I coach them hockey Mm -hmm. in the uh, winter. So, again, there is where I learn um, what they experience. Um, most of my kids are in group homes and mm-hmm. and have had really tough lives, so they really appreciate the chance to play hockey for free. They get the equipment for free, mm-hmm. and um, they're great kids, and they learn a lot, and they're in a place where they're supported and loved as well. So I, I share my experience with them. I use this as knowledge and experience in my degree and in my community, and that I feel I connect with people but I greater my knowledge, and now I understand more. And I feel like when you understand, you connect with people, you can make a bigger difference. So for me, it's not just about MMIW, but it could be about the water boil advisory mm-hmm. or that the government is discriminated to for First Nations communities and mm-hmm. underfunds them 50 to 30% mm-hmm. less in every aspect of their life. Mm-hmm. Or how um, like our CFS systems are kind of in shambles right now and our poor children are suffering. Yeah. So it's stuff like that that... Um, I learn about and you can be a voice about and once you understand you can move forward and make a bigger difference. And using sport as a tool of empowerment as well is really, really incredible. And is there anything that you're really looking forward to? With myself in track and field, I'm in a new event javelin, so I'm really excited to try that out. Mm-hmm. I only picked up a javelin for the first time uh, two weeks ago actually. So I'm oh. competing <laughs> at the North American Indigenous Games in Javelin in a whole new event. Okay. So I'm really excited for that. Also the four by four relay is a huge in track and field. But um when I think about um the other teams here, I'm obviously excited for everybody. Yeah. But we're not all on the same campus. So I'm staying with people that are playing basketball, wrestling okay. and volleyball. Okay. So because lacrosse and archery soccer and baseball is really far away mm-hmm. we've only really gotten to watch um basketball and volleyball predominantly also swimming is here yeah. but um I'm, I'm rooting for all of our teams but those are the few i've had the um, opportunity to watch and i know a couple of the people on those teams i'm just really excited for them that's that sounds amazing i mean i wish you all the best in your 3000 meter and your javelin i'm sure you'll totally slay <laughs> today i I'm so grateful that you're speaking to me and all the best to your community and your team and your, 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 you know, your fellow athletes and what you've done is you're, in my opinion, a national treasure and I wish you all the best today and and always. Thank you very much. I really, really appreciate it. Um, This has been awesome. (laughs) Thanks so much, Tracy. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Our very own Lindsay Gibbs has been in Seattle covering the WNBA All-Star Game, and we're lucky enough to have some of her clips of interviews with the players. Here she is. Hey, friends. I'm so sad I couldn't be on the panel this week, but I did have an excused absence. I was in Seattle for the WNBA All-Star Game. Since you all couldn't be with me, I wanted to share a few of my favorite moments with you. Starting, of course, with the super Diana Taurasi post-game press conference where they were asked once again how special it is to still be playing together in all-star games all these years later. It is special. It is special. You know, I think we've actually had moments more so at the Olympics where it's like, we, you know, we play together a lot. We've done this a lot. It's coming to an, it's slowly coming to an end. So I don't think either of us really take it for granted. We know that, yes, we've played a ton together, but... Maybe this is the last time we get to be on the same court, you know? So we definitely click right away. It's seamless. You know, we fall right back into it. It's always fun. I mean, it's funny because one of our friends who went to college before the game, she goes, congrats, the oldest all-star duo of all time. So I need a fact check on that. While the West won the game 131 to 120, it was a six foot six inch 23 year old from the Bahamas on the East team who really stole the show. Jonquil Jones, a forward from the Connecticut Sun, scored a game-high 24 points and finished with a dunk. When I asked Neko Gumake who impressed her the most on the East, she didn't hold back. And neither did Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi when I asked them the same question at their post-game presser. The East had a lot of new players, a lot of young players. Who were you most impressed with? Of course, Jonquil Jones. She did awesome. And that dunk in the end was what we needed. We were just like, 
everybody's watching go out there and do it she had the confidence she's like yeah i just need some space so we're like all right get out we'll get out of the way and you can do your thing i mean you know with her stature and the way she can handle the ball shoot the ball she she works so easy on the court and uh i just think she's got a really great future yeah that, that skill skill set at that height and she like she said it's, it's there's something like very it's like she just flows out there it's fun to watch she did great so after the game, Sue and Diana were seen talking to John Quell for quite some time. When asked in press what they were talking about, Sue said that John Quell was actually apologizing for falling asleep early the night before and being the only WNBA All-Star to miss Sue's party. Sue wondered if uh, perhaps John Quell's early sleep regimen had something to do with her success at the game. So I asked her about it during the presser. Yeah, I felt bad because um, I had all intentions of going. Um, we went to like a little, I went to a Nike event. And when I got back to my room, like, I think everything just finally started catching up to me. And I think the whole day I was kind of just running off of adrenaline, you know, just excited to be here, excited to go to all the different events. And that was the first time in the day that I actually slowed down and just hit me like a, like a freight train. So I was just like, man, I can't make it. <laughs> so that's the plan, I guess. If I'm here again next year, I gotta do it again. Another player on the East that really impressed me was Allie Quigley, who is pretty much the opposite of Jonquel Jones. She's 31 years old, she's 5'10", and it took her many years to really find her WNBA legs. This was her first All-Star game, and she actually won the three-point contest at halftime, which was a really fun event. In the locker room, I asked the Chicago Sky star how she felt going into the contest, and for information about the Pat Quigley Memorial Fund, which is where she donated the $10,000 she won in the three-point contest. I just stay confident and not get too nervous because it gets a little nerve-wracking when they call your name and you're just ready to say go, you know? <laughs> yeah. So um, just try to get in a rhythm and, you know, stay confident. Did you do anything special to prepare? Not really. I think after that first round, I kind of got the nerves out and then I felt a little better in the second one. Tell me about the memorial fund. Uh, it was for my dad. He passed away when I was about seven. He went to the same high school I went to and so for the high school, we uh, try to do called the Pat, Pat Quigley Memorial Scholarship every year for a family or a kid that, you know, really needs it. Going back to Sue and Diana, both of them actually played with Allie earlier in her careers. And I absolutely loved their insight when a reporter asked if they ever saw her becoming an all-star. Um, so she played in Phoenix and Seattle early in her career. So we were having a conversation and it's, um, I don't want to take your words, but it was, it was, so in Seattle, she was trying to be this backup point guard, or our team was trying to make her a backup point guard. And she's a scorer, clearly. And I think for her, her, her game just evolved when she went overseas. And she learned how to be the focal point, and she learned how to like take on that responsibility. And then came back to the WNBA, did great as a six-man, and slowly you can see, you know, she's made the transformation into a go-to player. Um, so this guy, I mean, in practice, I have to guard her a lot. So she's always been able to do that. It was, it was not easy guarding her in practice, um, but for us, she was at that point guard spot, so it didn't necessarily make sense, and then he had some good points there. Yeah, I mean, she just, uh, he, you can tell early on she had something special about the way she can score the basketball, and, uh, you know, she filled out a little bit physically, and now you can just tell she's a confident basketball player. She knows what she does really well, and she's one of the best in the world, um, you know, at the pull-ups, and obviously the three-point contest, she showed what kind of touch she has, and, uh, you know, I think a long time for she was about confidence, and you know, I think she's reached that point where she's a confident basketball player. And, you know, she's playing that level. While I was at All-Star Weekend, I was also reporting on a Think Progress piece about athlete activism. One of the players I talked to was the great Tina Charles, who I asked about the impact she thought that last summer's Black Lives Matter protest in the WNBA had and why she got involved. I think it was a growth of empowerment for the sense of the WNBA and um, us being able to use our voice to advocate for what we believed in and, um, you know, African-American oppression and police brutality. It was really important to us. You know, the WNBA is made up 70 percent of African-Americans. So for me personally, to, to spearhead um, what was going on, um, the, the, the place I thought the WNBA should have taken, it, it was a no-brainer for me. Um, I consider myself to have a voice and I have a right to use it, you know, um, and, and that's something that my mom made very pivotal in my life at a young age. You know, there's many thing that, things that I advocate for, um, but when it comes to African-American oppression and what was going on last, last summer, and it, it was second nature for me. 
I also talked about athlete activism with Minnesota Lynx head coach Cheryl Reeve, who was on hand to coach the West. The Lynx really kicked off the league's Black Lives Matter protest last year, so I want to get her insights. Here are some excerpts from that conversation. We were in Connecticut when, when it first kind of came, came to a head. Um, Simone being from uh, an area in Baton Rouge where uh, she frequented the, the store uh, where the murder took place. Uh, and then obviously hitting close to home, the Flando Castile, right, right there in St. Paul for us. We just started talking about it. And um, it's a very, very thoughtful group, uh, very mature group. And I advocate for them to, to use their voices, you know, um, because it's, we're more than just basketball players. You know, we're, we're a family, first and foremost. Uh, and for me, it was very painful, uh, you know, to, to know I'm a white person and, you know, how, how impacted. Um, their families are and and the fear uh, that they have uh, and I've heard a number of stories along the way about uh, social injustice and, and so you know I just want to give them a platform we just want to be leaders that, that's what I think leaders do you know they're not just so tunnel vision on themselves I mean leaders are involved in their communities and that's what we want we want people to have courage to stand up for these things and speak out. Speaking of speaking out, I couldn't leave without sitting down with Sue Bird one-on-one to discuss, among other things, the reaction to her ESPN profile where she came out and also her thoughts on WNBA activism. Here are some clips from that talk. Uh, Sue, obviously it's been a big couple of days for you, and I know the ESPN article. How's the response been, and how are you feeling? I'm feeling great, you know. Uh, actually, not much different than I did two days ago, which is, you know, nice. And the response has been amazing, you know, a lot of support, um, you know, people just saying congratulations, which is kind of funny in a way, but also very much appreciated. Um, I've been talking to everyone about the WNBA activism and what an important and integral part it's become of the league. Um, I know you were involved last year in the Black Lives Matter, the Seattle team. What are your memories from last summer? Yeah, uh, obviously my memories from last summer, you know, from a Seattle standpoint, yes, our team came together and wanted to be a part of of what our league was doing, but it was because it what made it special was the entire league was on the same page, you know, and and you know the WNBA being you know you know one of just a few professional female leagues out there. We have this platform and we need to use it, and and we represent so many different walks of life. And from that standpoint, we need to make sure we use our voices. Why does the WNBA it seems to lend itself well to activism? Do you, some my theory sometimes is that female athletes are already kind of bold in their their mere existence (laughs) yeah you're fighting anyways does that sound right I mean is that I think it's a part of it you know I think as a female athlete you know even though it's you know the WNBA has now been around our 21st season which is amazing in so many ways we're still fighting you know we're still trying to you know prove ourselves and and get things moving um, in the right direction and and so I think it is innate in us to, to, to have that fighting mentality to speak up on things that you know we see happening and then at the same time the makeup of our league, you know, it's 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 a melting pot, you know, and with that, again, bringing it back to what I was saying before, you're kind of exposed to things and you see things and you're bringing your own story to it. And and I don't know, it just it it, it lends to a certain amount of activism. It just naturally fits. OK, friends, thank you so much for bearing with me and the audio as I relived a fantastic weekend. I'm going to leave you back to the panel now. But first, some words from WNBA President Lisa Borders from her press conference before the game. Our players are amazing athletes. They display their talents every single day. But that's what they do. That's not who they are. There are dimensions to their personalities. They have passions. They have purpose in life. And they understand that they have a platform to share what they think about any and possibly everything. Now, I've told many of you I will celebrate my 60th birthday this year. And so many of you know I grew up in an era before Title IX. It wasn't passed until 1972, and I was in high school. And I come from the segregated South. Atlanta is my home city. So recognizing that women still appear to be a disenfranchised group, where folks think they have the right to tell us what to do with our bodies and who we should love, That's not happening here in Seattle, and that's not happening in the WNBA.
Moving on to our next topic, Brenda, would you like to start us on this one? Sure. Thanks, Shireen. So this week we learned that Vice would be ending its sports site. And this sports uh, coverage, as far as I understand, is going to continue on Vice, but it's transitioning to video. This seems to be a growing trend because just last month, Fox Sports also announced a switch to video content instead of its usual text-based content. Many of us here at Burn It All Down have written for Vice Sports. We'd like to, to talk about it a little bit and what it means. That, that particular site took a lot of important pieces that didn't have homes in other places. So I admit that personally, I'm a little distressed because I read it all the time. Uh, I've only written one piece for them with Josh Nadel, which was a long essay on the status of women's soccer in South America. We couldn't get anyone else to touch that in Chile or Argentina. And the best part of it was that they had a, a Spanish site. So we wrote it and then they immediately translated it, which is really unique. I mean, The Guardian tr has tried to do it a little bit, but it's very difficult to, to get that going. From what I've been reading on social media, a lot of these sites are going over to video content because advertisers can force users to engage more solidly with, with the video than the text. Basically, you, you're forced to click through or to watch the ad or to watch part of the ad. I'm a reader myself, so, so I'm bummed. Um, and I can only see this limiting the voices and subject matters that get covered because of the way that video works. But then again, maybe I'm just reticent to change. So I want to ask you guys, what, what do you think this means? Oh, man. I mean, I'll say I am nervous about it. I've only ever been a full-time freelancer since I got into this, which means that like I've never actually been on a staff before. So uh, every single piece that I write, I have to pitch to a site and an editor has to take it. And this can be a, a long process. So for example, I just wrote a piece about girls that play baseball and it actually took me about four months to place that. There, there were a lot of rejections involved before Bleacher Report took it up. And, you know, Vice Sports for me was a place where there were certain things that I knew that they would publish. Um, and they were better than most places about women's sport in particular. I wrote about female athletes for them. And as a freelance writer, that's a really important thing, knowing where you can go to get stuff published. And I I am real nervous about what this says, both for women's sport coverage, where we're headed, if, if we're having less space to write about sports in general, and there's already a crisis with how much, how little, I guess I should say, women's sports gets covered. What does that mean then if, if we're already shrinking the size. And then, like you said, Brenda, Vice Sports was so good about international sport. <laughs> like, it was actually one of the places that I would go to see if there was something written about something happening outside of the U.S. Uh, you know, you can do that a little bit with The Guardian, you, you know, hop over to England for us English speakers to find that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's it's it was so good for that. And I am nervous about where this is all headed. Um, I, like Jessica, have actually never been on staff to write, so I'm in the same position. And um, Vice was actually where I got my first writing job. Um, and I wrote about the hijab ban in basketball, and it was a story that I pitched to about 12 places. And um, they took it, and then very recently, when the hijab ban was rescinded, I was lucky enough to write for them again to sort of wrap it up, and it came full circle for me to be able to have that. And I think that... A lot of us are very invested in the stories we write about. And I mean, I can only speak for myself, but it meant a lot to me to be able to write for them. And for me, it was one of the most cathartic experiences. And I'm really sad to see it go because it's one of the places where I've seen the most diversity in, in writers as well. I've seen uh, like different kinds of stories and them being really open, like their editorial staff is fantastic. And I'm this is a this is a hit for you know, people myself that actually are like one of the best places that I've ever worked with is Vice Sports. So I'm really sad about this. And, you know, having those stories out there means a lot to women athletes themselves. When we did that story on South American soccer, Josh and I interviewed different members of the, the women's national team, and they wrote back to us how much it meant to them to see it in print, even before the Spanish tra translation came out, to see pictures of themselves and they could show their parents. And they actually went to the FA and showed the FA, look at this story that's being written about us. So it, it can be a way 
that women athletes advocate for themselves, it can be a, a support for them. So it's, I think it, it goes back around and actually feeds into the development of women's sports itself. Jess? And this is part of a, a long chain of events, right? So Brenda mentioned Fox Sports getting rid of all written content and replacing it with solely video, a lot of it coming from FS1, which is kind of mainly just a garbage pile of people. But you know, MTV News is gone. Uh, they've shut down recently, which, you know, it wasn't a ton of sports coverage, but it was run by people who used to run Grantland, which was ESPN sort of long form, uh, interesting site. And I will say, you know, mentioning Grantland, uh, these sites aren't perfect and, and some of them have done damage in, in the work that they do, um, at Grantland in particular with their Dr. V story. But sort of looking at the larger landscape here, there were massive layoffs at ESPN recently. Most of those people were, you know, front-end writers that a lot of us knew. Um, SI, Sports Illustrated, has laid off people recently, and they've just been, you know, purging over the last couple of years as they've been losing funding. And it's not really clear what's going to happen with Sports Illustrated. I think there were rumors recently that one of Donald Trump's friends might buy the group that owns Sports Illustrated. So, like, where is that headed? Um, and so, you know, and Gawker went down. Deadspin at least survived after Gawker went down. I mean, there's like a there's just so much going on. And part of it for me is, you know, there's like a selfish part, like when ESPN lays off people who are so good at their job and their job is similar to my job, then I think, oh, crap, like now I'm up against these people that are going to have to freelance like I am. Um, But then I just I don't know where this is all headed at this point. Um, You know, as a freelancer, one of the things I get a lot is why don't you get on staff, which, you know, is kind of laughable because I don't I think my brand would would work well on a staff. I think I'm a little too much of a firebrand maybe to actually get on a staff. But um I wouldn't play well by the brands, uh, for the brand's reputation, maybe. But as a freelancer, looking at this landscape, you know, people tell me, get on staff, it's stable. And I'm like, is it? What does stable look like in the media right now? And so what does that mean for people coming up behind us? What is this going to look like? And I'm going to pitch this off to Shireen right now, but like, what does this mean for women and and as sports writers? Well, I mean, I speak to university students. I go to conferences and I'm always encouraging young women to get into sports field. But then I don't want to feel like I'm being naive when I give this advice because it's really important to understand about being able to pay your bills. I mean, there was a really great thread on Twitter um, a friend of the show and a colleague of ours who writes about hockey, uh, Kate Smini, uh tweeted about this, about how being free- freelancing was actually costing her out of pocket. It wasn't, you know, and, and I think we need to look at that because the caliber of work is excellent. And a lot of the female sports writers that I know are actually freelance. I, I think I could only name a, maybe a dozen that are on staff somewhere. And that's, those numbers are really, they're not great. And I've thought about it, like, should I do I need to get a second job to be able to support what I do and you know because there's kids there's family there's commitments and there's everything else and I love this work like case in point I love this podcast so much and it's important that people have told us it's important work we don't get paid for it we we prep we do research we do this we organize we collaborate and I mean I just I think that's one of the things that doing this is not how financially feasible is it? And when we give advice to to encourage other women to get involved in sports, but then it's a catch 22. We want to tell them to get involved. But then again, are like, okay, well, wait, you need to do something that's sustainable for you because financial security is crucial. I'm in an era where, you know, there's there may not be a medical uh, care or medical insurance, health insurance available or whatnot in the world that we live in right now. You have to be you have to be look at the whole picture. And as I have no answer for it. And um, I'm, I'm trying to be really positive about it. But I've just been drinking a lot of coffee and drowning my anxiety in that a little bit, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd just like to add that. I think this is part of a broader trend from what I've read. Women are poised to be the majority of the gig economy. And initially people thought maybe this will be great for women that have to juggle a family and other kinds of demands on their time. But what's happened is instead of getting you know, benefits, as you mentioned, Shireen, 
instead of having stability, the gig economy hasn't been this feminist godsend that people originally thought it might. Instead, it's a lack of parental leave, a lack of disability, things like that. So it is, it, uh, the sports writing is particular, it's a particular space, but I think it's also connected to these, these broader trends. Jess, did you want to did you want to wrap this up for us? Yeah, I just wanted to finish by saying that video is terrible. And as a consumer of media, I'm really sad about this move. So like as a content creator, it's it's alarming for me. But I hate video. Like I I don't like watching it. Like maybe that makes me an old lady. And I don't know. (laughs) But, you know, when I'm in public, if I don't have headphones, how am I supposed to consume this media? Like I'm not going to be the asshole who's watching a video without my headphones. in. I hate those people, too. Um, and I just get really worried about what this means for storytelling moving forward, like what that looks like. You can say a lot more in words than you can with video. And then again, just as a consumer, what this means, it's all it's all very concerning. Well, and you can't really this gig economy doesn't work so well if it becomes video. That's a very different even even that yes. is a very different platform. One, okay, I know I said it was the last thing and and I'm a terrible liar, but one more thing is that there's no evidence that audiences are demanding more video. From from what I read on NBC, I mean, the statistics are not pointing in that direction. So what you're saying is really interesting that that this is coming from advertisers, not from audiences. Okay, now I swear it's it's over. (laughs) I could listen to you forever as long as you don't make a video um, and not to... No, no, that's not true. I love your videos as well. Now you're no getting disrespect. one. Now you're getting one no, no, today. No disrespect to any of the amazing video producers that we know. Of we, course we love not. Your work no. is important. It's just, yeah, absolutely. Um, I like reading. Moving on to everyone's favorite segment, this is a burn pile. Jessica, what are you flaming this week? Yeah, so I hope you guys will indulge me. This is a little bit long because it's a little bit confusing if you don't live in the state of Texas, which is just a confusing place to live. So I want to quickly explain how lawmaking works in Texas, my home state. Uh, First, this will no surprise to anyone who knows even a little bit about Texas politics. We are staunchly GOP, Republican-held state. So that means the state Senate, the state House are both controlled by the GOP. The governor is a Republican. And it's a specific brand of extreme conservatism that spends a lot of time taking away resources from and criminalizing the most vulnerable citizens in our state. It's, It's very hard to watch. Because of there's a belief in small government, the Texas legislature actually only meets every other year to put up bills and pass them into law. So if your bill doesn't get through the regular session, as we call it here, too bad. You have to wait almost two more years to get to put it up again, right? Except, except that the governor has the ability to call a, a special session, which is which they can do if they feel that there is an emergency legislative issue that needs to be handled, right? So think about, you know, funding after a natural disaster or something like that. But, of course, uh, our governors do it just because their bills didn't get passed in the regular session. And this is bad, in, in part because it's easier to pass bills during a special session because the point of it is to move quickly during an emergency, right? So stuff that was hard to pass in the GOP-led Senate and House becomes easier even under special session. Okay, so last week, the legislature went into special. That's what we, we always talk about the special here. One of the items on the governor's agenda for this session is the horrific anti-transgender so-called bathroom bill. State Senator Lois Kolkhorst filed the bill, SB3, last week, and it was approved by a Republican-dominated Senate committee on Friday evening, and now it's heading to a full Senate for a vote. Here's how the Human Rights Campaign explains it. I know the HRC isn't the best always on trans issues, but this is the best explanation that I could find. So SB3, quote, mandates HB2, North Carolina-style anti-transgender discrimination in any multiple occupancy restroom or locker room in any property owned by a city, 
county, school district, state agency, or other political subdivision. Further, it would overturn LGBTQ-inclusive non-discrimination ordinances protecting millions of people across Texas in cities such as Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, and Fort Worth, insofar as those ordinances protect people from discrimination in bathrooms. It also prohibits these entities from forbidding discrimination in athletics on the basis of any characteristic not currently reflected in state law, which is an obvious jab at transgender athletes in particular. I mean, this is just, I can't even explain how upsetting it is to just read that to you guys right now. Um, Chris Mosier, the first openly trans man to make a men's U.S. national team when he qualified for the Sprint Duathlon team in 2015 and creator of a website called transathlete.com. If you don't know a lot about trans athletes, I really think you should check out transathlete.com. Uh, Chris had a great series of tweets about why this bill is bad. So I'm just going to quote him on this. And you can go and read all of his tweets at the Chris Mosier. Um, so, quote, transgender athletes are not a threat to the safety of others. We are people. We hate locker rooms as much as, if not more than you. Denying transgender athletes access to the appropriate facilities that align with our identity prevents us from fully participating in sport. Denying trans people safe access to restrooms is inhumane. It is unsafe for us to go to a restroom that does not align with how we identify. But let's be real here. Lois Kolkhorst isn't even thinking of sending a trans man with a beard into a women's locker room or ladies' restroom. Truth is, Lois Kolkhorst is demonizing trans women. She is putting trans people's lives at risk by sending them to spaces they do not belong. The intent of Lois Kolkhorst is clear, to take trans people out of public life and make it more difficult for them to participate in sports. Sport is about community, not discrimination. We need greater acceptance and inclusion, not anti-transgender bills. So those were parts of Chris's tweets about this. If you live in Texas, it's imperative that you call your state senators now and tell them to vote down SB3. On Twitter, follow the hashtag y'all means all, which is just lovely. We need to burn this hateful bill to the ground for all its ills. One thing I know about the state of Texas is there are people here who fight very hard to protect the vulnerable and to protect civil rights in the face of a ruling political party who does everything they can, including bending the rules, to go after them. So today, I want to say we need to burn SB3. Oh, burn it. Burn it. Brenda? Okay, so today I want to throw ESPN FC, their soccer site, onto the burn pile for their shitty, shitty coverage of women's soccer. There is literally no news mundane enough about the men's game that doesn't top anything coming out of women's soccer. They literally previewed the December matchups between Barcelona and Real Madrid yesterday. So that was the headlining. December, I'd just like to say it's July. Uh, they've also had a series of fake news transfer stories like Neymar's switching from Barcelona to PSG, then running an even faker story on what Barcelona's plans were for when Neymar took that decision, which has not been made, but no headline coverage of Euros, which is actually taking place right now, this month, not December. Again, literally no news mundane enough about the men's game. I understand you can find it on ESPNW, and I love ESPNW, but that doesn't give ESPN FC a pass to outsource women's soccer. I should say that they're not alone, actually. This week, we saw a news story by the Daily Star, penned by not one but two male journalists, that was headlined, quote, The sexiest Wimbledon ever may be over, but fear not. The Women's Euro 2017 is about to kick off with teams boasting gorgeous footballers. End of quote. Oh. It took two oh. two men, two men <laughs> to come oh. up to come up with that headline. I mean, maybe one did the first part and the other did, <laughs> did the second. I'm not sure how that collaboration worked. Like I'll pick all the sexiest uh, teams from Den, you know, all the sexiest footballers from Denmark, Iceland, France. You work on Germany, Italy, Russia. Is that, I'm not sure how the the labor was divided in terms of that. It's it's degrading. It's disgusting. It's really old. And I don't want to read one more thing, one more faker and fakier news about transfers until I get some Euro information. So I'd like to throw them onto the burn pile. ESPN. 
a daily star, if that can be counted as a journalistic site, you go on there too. Burn pile. Burn. Burn it. Oh. Um, my burn for this week is actually uh, an article that was written with the New York Times and sort of everything emanating from this. This uh, piece was uh, by Adam Bryant of the New York Times, and he interviewed Erica Nardini, who is the CEO of Barstool Sports. Now, some of our listeners may or not be familiar with their trolling, their misogyny, and their racism, and their blatant horrible sports writing, uh, quote unquote, sports writing. Now, this interview with Erica Nardini is problematic for many reasons. So one of the things was that was really highlighted. She admits that she likes to text her staff from the weekends to late night to test them. So she thinks about work, so everybody should. So this is the part of the interview that sort of really frustrated me um, amongst everything else. And the quote is this um, from her, quote, I think bro-ish is a convenient stereotype. Barstool Sports is far more layered than that. Does a fraction of our content feature girls? Yes. Are those pieces I gravitate toward? No. But I'm not the editorial voice. I'm not the target audience. I respect that I'm neither of those things. I'm proud to work for a brand that knows itself and what its audience wants. It's a rare thing. End quote. <laughs> so when I when my brain stopped barfing, I was like, "Yeah, no, uh, Barstool's a site that thrives on misogyny, racism, and it's disgusting." And I think it's really important to remember that women can uphold systems of toxic patriarchy, and this is an example of that. And the fact that she's getting lauded for a CEO, yes, we do want women to be financially independent and get it. Do they have to be at the helm of a site like this and say, well, you know, I'm not really responsible for the content? It doesn't work like this. So I want to burn that to the ground. Burn it. So let's move on to some happier news. Jess, you want to take us for the badass woman of the week? Absolutely. So as we said before, our co-host Lindsay Gibbs is not on the podcast today because she is flying back from Seattle, where she attended the WNBA All-Star Game and also went to last week's Seattle Storm Game against the Chicago Sky. That game was significant in the history of athlete activism and is why we've chosen the Seattle Storm as our badass women of the week. Now I'm just going to quote the lead from a piece that Lindsay wrote at Think Progress about this. So just imagine that this is Lindsay's voice, okay? So here goes, quote, 35 minutes before the Chicago sky took on the Seattle storm in a nationally televised WNBA game on Tuesday night, six foot seven sky center Imani Boyette wasn't on the court warming up, nor was she in the locker room with her teammates getting her game face on. Instead, she was the lone player on stage in front of hundreds of pink clad storm fans at key arena plaza listening to the storm owners kick off a pregame rally in support of planned parenthood it takes something very significant for a pro athlete to disrupt their typical pregame routine but for boyette the chance to be a part of the first official partnership between a pro sports team and planned parenthood was worth the detour quote i think planned parenthood is just so much more influential and helpful than the media likes to portray boyette told think progress before the rally I didn't have health insurance growing up, so Planned Parenthood was my OBGYN. It was my birth control, anything and everything. Last month, the Storm's all-female ownership group made national headlines when it announced a partnership with the reproductive health care provider, whose very existence has become a political lightning rod. $5 from every ticket sold to Tuesday night's game was donated to Planned Parenthood, which, thanks to an attendance of 8,358 people, totaled $41,790. Further donations are pouring in as well from a raffle, an online auction, and a Seattle-based app, Vermouth, which is donating a dollar to Planned Parenthood for every app downloaded up to 50000 so thank you, Lindsay, for this wonderful piece and for this coverage. And in case anyone's wondering, the sky ended up beating the storm, 94-83. And keep on, Seattle Storm, Badass Women of the Week. This is thrilling news. Awesome. Now moving on to our honorable mentions. Brenda? My honorable mention for this week is Nadia Nadim, Denmark's striker who learned football in a refugee camp. She's been around a long time, and so her story's not not exclusive to this moment or new or anything like that. But every time she takes the pitch, I think about it. After her father was executed, her family fled Afghanistan, and she said, quote, I really got the interest when I was in Denmark 
by the way, she's talking about football. When I was in Denmark, soccer, <laughs> when I was in Denmark in the refugee camp, because it was the only thing we had then. When I have a ball at my feet, I didn't really think about anything else. It's amazing and it helped me through a lot. It got me connected with Danish children. Perhaps it also helped me learn the language faster. End of quote. She plays for the Portland Thorns, but we're watching her right now in the Euros. And I just love her story. And I think she's just such a super badass lady. Love. I love Nadia. I interviewed her for a BuzzFeed piece and she is de- delightful. She's also a med school student. A lot of people don't know this about huh. her. She's she's incredible and just wow. one of the nicest people I've ever spoken to. She's lovely. Um, my uh, honorable mention goes to, um, I've got two. Um, there's so many amazing women in sport. Um, this was uh, just a, a recognition of the opening of the Euro 2017, the women's Euros. There was 21,732 people at the match between the Netherlands and Norway. And I think that those women that brought out everybody that are hyping the game, that are into the game, and we'll uh, get more into yours in future episode. But um, I just wanted to mention that because I think it's really important for people to say that, oh, women don't draw out people. They absolutely do. So props to those teams, props to the women who are amplifying and you know the game and, and, and elevating the game. Um, I also wanted to, along that note, uh, recognize Niamh O'Donoghue, who is the first woman on Ireland's Football Association board. So for the longest time, there had actually not been a woman sitting on the board. So just recognition to her and to the Ireland FA for having somebody on there. Um, Yeah, and I lied. I actually have one more. I have three. Um, The last one I just wanted to mention quickly was kind of a crush of mine, Clarissa Shields, was she won at at the Children's, uh, the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Sports Award. She won for Biggest Powerhouse. Now, this is an award that's voted on by youth, and the fact that she she won is because she inspires kids, and I think that's amazing, and I love Clarissa Shields so much. Moving on to an event that we're looking forward to, Brenda. I'm looking forward to today. We are we're recording now Sunday, and Spain's going to play England in the Euros, and I'm super psyched. So the last time they met in Euros, it was 2013, and Spain beat England three to two. But after watching England thrash Scotland last week, 6-0, I think they look in great shape, and I'm really excited to see what's going to happen. Jessica? Yeah, after this weekend's WNBA All-Star Game, which was really fun to watch, the league begins the second half of the season this week. There is a packed schedule of games on Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday this upcoming week. And so I'm excited about the Seattle Storm visiting the reigning champions LA Sparks on Tuesday night. And I'm also looking forward to the Minnesota Lynx visit to the Atlanta Dream on Friday. Awesome. I am going to jump off of this podcast recording and go right into watching the cricket final. And then when that's over, I will get into watching the Euros. Looking forward to France trying to keep his head above water this week after a tie last night with uh, Austria. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Great week for women in sports. So that's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Today's show was edited and mixed by the amazing Ellie Gordon Morshall. And you can find more of Ellie's awesome work at www.legm.com. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe, rate us, to let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down, on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod, and you can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you can find a link to our GoFundMe campaign. We would appreciate any consideration for contributions so we can keep doing the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned. On behalf of Jessica and Brenda, I'm Shereen Ahmed, and thank you for joining us this week.